0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 134. And the quote of the day is, success is not a big step in the future. Success is a small step taken right now. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource podcast. And this session is brought to you by DW Drums. And as you know, I've been playing DW for years, not only because they make great handcrafted drums, but also because they support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world, much like this podcast. Be sure to thank them and say hello and check them out at DWDrums.com. This session is also free thanks to the good folks at Promark, makers of the Select Balance Select Bounce is a new way of building, typing, and choosing drumsticks. You can choose the length, balance point, taper, tip, and material that creates the perfect stick for you using the Select Balance system. Only from Promark. Be sure to check them out today at Promark.com. Listen, I get a lot of emails of people asking about how they can get to the next level, how they can get more touring gigs, how they can get more studio work, how they can get more students and things like that. And it's a tough road out there and And I can help you. I can help you go down that road with you with some one on one coaching and training that I do. If you're interested in working with me on a one on one level to really step up your game and take your take your drumming and your career to the next level, check out drummersresourcecom dot com forward slash coaching. We set up a 15 minute call. We talk about if we're the right fit for each other and see if everything is kosher with what you're trying to do and if I can help. And from there, we'll get to work on getting you where you need to be. So check it out today. Drummersresource.com forward slash coaching. Now, the conversation I have today is with Nate Morton. And for those of you who don't know who Nate is, shame on you. But uh, Nate is the house drummer for The Voice, which is, in my opinion, an awesome awesome gig and the cool thing is talking about the story of how he got there and you know a lot of people think that it's a big jump to this to this big gig and sort of like I talked about in the opening credits with the with the quote was that it's small things that you do every single day that are going to get you to that big gig, that are going to get you that big touring gig, that are going to get you that big session. And or that's with anything in life, really, of, of trying to achieve things. Everybody think it's this big jump, but it's actually small, incremental steps. So this story with Nate is really, really awesome. And his dedication and how he talks about not having a plan B and all sorts of things. Just an awesome conversation that I've been trying to line up for a while. So I'm super, super pumped to get this out to you guys and pull Plus, he's a he's a really funny guy and energetic and, and great to have on the podcast. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to get into this conversation with Mr. Nate Morton. Enjoy. Nate, what's going on, my man? Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it.
1: It is absolutely my pleasure to be with you. And how are you, Nick?
0: I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I can't complain. It's uh it's a nice day today and I'm, I think it's supposed to be cold the rest of the week. You don't have to deal with that in in California, but uh
1: I don't no, we we have mudslides, we have earthquakes. Right. Um, but we don't we, we 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 don't have snow. Well, right. In California, we have snow. In L.A., we don't especially get
0: too Right, right, right. I'll I'll deal with no snow. I'm actually moving out there next year. So, uh, really, look, yeah, yeah. I'm looking for. I'm gonna, oh, well, uh, welcome to you. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm. I think I'm gonna get this gig um, with this show. It's called The Voice. I don't know if you've ever have you heard of it or not. Have you ever?
2: Interesting. You should mention that.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: I actually didn't. You know what's funny, man? I've actually. You know what's funny? I've actually found out that I've been fired from gigs like that i really? I found out once that I was fired from a gig because I bumped into the bass player somewhere, and he said to me, "Hey Nate, so uh, you're gonna be at that audition next week for the gig that I was doing, like the gig that I had to do. You're gonna be at that audition, you know, next week." And I went, "What audition?" And then it, <laughs> my gig, it was like that awkward. So I was like, "Oh, uh, ouch! Never mind." <laughs> awkward. And so, yeah, so that's how I actually was fired from a gig once.
0: <laughs> I just found out that I was fired from a gig like two weeks ago on Facebook, which was cool. No! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't Why? like, it's, it's a long story. It wasn't really like a firing. It was just... The guy didn't know for some reason didn't know that I was going to be back in town. So I'm glad that the guy posted about it though, because he was like, "Oh, this person's on drums," and I was like, "Hmm, I was planning right. on traveling." Wow, so, yeah, actually, I'm actually glad that the the keyboard player posted about it, but uh, but you know that, that was yeah. so yeah, I've had a few of those. I've had a few of those. I had one. I had one gig once where someone called me.
1: It was a a church gig, actually. And someone called. I was playing at this church. And someone called and said, hey, Nate, we're actually not going to need you this Sunday because we're going to be doing something a little bit different at the church. And so in my head, I go, oh, okay, maybe there's a visiting choir or maybe there's, you know, like, I don't even know, something different going on. Okay, cool. You know? And then mm-hmm. come to find out, yeah, they had just replaced the entire band and didn't bother actually just saying
0: you're, you're fired. That's what they meant by <laughs> something different going on. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a story. I had a girlfriend and I said, Hey, uh, I said, why don't you come over? It was, it was going to snow. I said, why don't we get snowed in? You know, she goes, all right, I'll call you back in five minutes. I'd never talked to her again. I saw her three years later at the bar. What? <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> so yeah, so it was a while ago, wow. but it's a, it's a funny story. I was what's, her, what's her name, Jennifer? Uh, it wasn't. Why? Did The oh, okay. same thing happen to you?
1: I was gonna say I I I, I well I yeah.
0: All right, it's very well,
1: early. All right, so
0: <laughs> so the listeners right now are probably like, "What the hell is going on?" I don't exactly, even know. Exactly. I don't even know who this is or what's going on. So right. and I'm talking and about drums, and
1: it's called the Drummers Resource.
0: Right, and we're going to talk a little bit about drums. We're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about everything uh, or anything that we want to talk about. But first, as the listeners know, I always got to get the backstory of of who I have on the show. So, Nate, just tell a little bit about who you are and and what you do, and then we'll get into your backstory a little bit because I know it's a little bit complicated, like you said.
1: Well, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Um, Basically, uh, I I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and Grew up part of my life on my grandfather's farm, actually, and uh, I guess I guess if I could if I could talk about the beginning of sort of music for me uh, during a time when my folks were uh, were separated, my father essentially used to send me his 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 primary way of communicating and staying in touch with me was that he would send me albums all the time, and so essentially he sent me albums of everyone from Kiss to Peter Frampton to George Clinton, to Michael Jackson and so on. And so it sort of started out, I mean, I'm I'm talking from age, that's from age eight, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so seven maybe. So that was kind of a zenith of my eclectic listening tastes. And so then that just kind of followed through. Eventually I wound up living back in Ohio um, briefly, in Kent, Ohio. And um, my folks actually got back together, but that's a little bit of another story. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then, so, so, so I guess from that point on, I just started to add and add and add more to my listening tastes. Um, and, and they started to span everything from, you know, Stevie Wonder to Hendrix. And then I got into Chick Corea and Miles Davis and jazz, you know, artists like that. And then in high school, uh, at that time I was living in Maryland. And so in high school, I was playing with like, um, like a ska band. We were sort of a, like a, we wanted to be, we wanted to sort of be Fugazi. So yeah. that was like an influence of ours. We were also influenced by Bow Wow Wow. At the time, we were also influenced by Minor Threat. So we were kind of in that hardcore pop, pop I have to say pop, but sort of hardcore, you know, wannabe band. So what, what year that, was that? That would have been maybe my junior, senior year of high school, which would have been like 80, uh, I'm going to say that was around 88, 89, somewhere in there. I would have been about 17, 18 years old, something oh, like that. Okay. And that was I'm a band gonna... called Akamili.
0: Because it was a, there was like a movement down there. Um, but that, I, you know what though? I'm going to sound ignorant by saying this, but I don't, no, I don't remember when it was. And I know, it, I guess it was like late seventies, early eighties with like well, the, with the go-go stuff been... and all that. Oh, go-go. Oh, go go is a totally different. That's a, that's a, like a DC thing.
1: Go go is interesting. Go go for anybody who doesn't know is like the most happening, dancing, right. grooving, funky party music. Live, live party music. Right. That is to say, there is not a guy standing behind two laptops and uh, you know and a, and a, and a digital uh, dual CD turntable. Right, um, right. actual live music. Um, and it's, it's, it's killing and it's slamming and it's, it's incredible, but somehow it has really never managed to escape the, uh, you know, the, the perimeter of, of the D.C. Virginia area, Baltimore, right. D.C. Virginia. So what I was, um,
0: the, And the reason why I brought that up, because I know that at the same time, there was sort of like this punk ska scene going on at the same time in the same, relatively the same area. And, mm-hmm. and neither one of the two sides of, of this style of music knew about each other. And then they started sort of intermingling. But I don't know what year that was. I don't know around what year that was. So,
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I wouldn't say that I would have represented an intermingling of them. But I would say that I was aware of both of them. And I would have okay. mentioned both of them. Probably the biggest go-go band at that time would have been well there, there are a couple that come to mind there was a junkyard band they, they had a phone called sardines that was mm-hmm. their, biggest, their biggest single if anybody is curious you can google junkyard band sardines um but uh the junkyard band trouble funk uh eu and um there's another one let's see what's the,
0: uh, what's the real mike uh or is his name mike who the, the the famous um what the heck is that guy's name I'll look it up, but you can continue to talk while, and I'll, I'll just say, just say stuff while I, I got to look this up. Say, sure, just, you got just it, you got things. it.
1: I got a phone book right here. I'll just start reading. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, EU was probably the biggest sort of go-go band of that era. And they actually, I would say EU probably came the closest to commercial success because they had a song called Doing the Butt, which was in, uh, I feel like that was in Do the Right Thing, and the Spike Lee yeah, yeah. movie Do the Right Thing. But, um, it's interesting because they would have been sort of occurring or sort of um, growing at a rapid rate around the same time. One of the things that I remember specifically in terms of the scene in Baltimore, in terms of like the punk hardcore scene was um, Fugazi at the time. I've, I've mentioned this a few times, so I don't mean to sound redundant, but Fugazi at the time was one of the first bands that I ever knew of to actually release their own records. Like, I imagine other bands did it, but at that time, the idea of going into your garage or going into your bedroom and recording your own record and essentially releasing it and, you know, having that release spawn its own indie record label was, you know, that was, that was monumentally forward thinking at Mm -hmm. the time. Now it's very common. Now, if you have a laptop computer, you can release a record and put it on the internet and kaboom, you're a record label. Right. Whereas at that time, you know, it was like this mythical thing to be able to actually release a record. Um, so that was the thing that I remember most about Fugazi. And that was one of the things that was the most inspiring to uh, our band, Ahamili.
0: Right. Oh, So the the guy who I was talking about was Chuck Brown. Oh yeah. Chuck Brown was soul searchers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was one of the forefathers. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, and he, he was, that was in like the seventies though. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're right.
1: You're right. Chuck Brown would have predated all of those. He would have predated sure. Rare Essence and uh, and, uh, and and EU and all of those guys. Yeah, for sure.
0: Right. I think you're definitely the first person who's ever brought up doing the butt on, on the podcast. And I love it. I, that tune is... I love well, that tune. Know, too. But
1: like I said, it's funny, man. It, it is interesting. I mean, it's a funny song and it's a silly song or whatever, right, right, right. but it's groovy. But if, if Melanie serves... I don't know why, but I feel like Marcus Miller was attached. I could be wrong about this. So if I'm wrong, then I apologize in advance. But I feel like Marcus Miller was somehow behind the soundtrack of that movie. And I feel like he really put a lot of effort into bringing Go-Go out of D.C. And Hmm. even with the commercial success of that song, and I have this vague recollection that it, there might've even been a video that was on MTV back when MTV played videos, um, oh, so long ago. Um, and even in spite of all of that, they weren't able to sort of break out of the DC go, go, you know, circuit. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. It's a, and that's years. That that's gotta be, whew, that's gotta be almost 20 years ago now, if not more, maybe more than that. Um, and so I'm not even sure that any of those bands are even still around now, right, including right, right. the area. I haven't, I haven't stayed up on my go-go band.
0: It's amazing uh, that, that an entire style, you know, can, can form and not have some sort of commercial success. I mean, everything from, you know, I I'm thinking of like smaller niche styles, like ska or, or, sure. you know even like acid jazz and all this. I mean, all of them have had, well, I don't know if acid, there's a lot of acid jazz commercial success.
1: But. <laughs> no, I understand your point though. Your point is a good one. I don't know what accounts for go, go not being able to break out or, you know, every, every now and then I'll hear something that sounds kind of go, go influenced to right. me, or I'll hear a band, you know, maybe a band is doing a show and there's a little break that kind of goes, and I'm kind of like, Oh, I think they heard some, some go-go back in the day, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but yeah, no, never broke out. And I've often in my, you know, wildest dreams, I've often thought how cool it would be to start a go-go band in LA. And like, why couldn't you do that? Like, why couldn't you have a residency where you did, you know, a gig every other week at a particular club and it would be like this happening, go-go thing. But the nature of LA, I've talked to my friends who, I have friends who work in, in, um, in theater and it's like the nature of LA is that it's more, it's a very, um, things are always in transition. So in LA, it would be very typical to start a situation like that. Let's say a go-go band and have it be, the happening hottest thing for three months and then no one cares anymore because they move on to whatever the next happening hot thing is. Right. Um, there are exceptions, there are exceptions. I've got a buddy in town named Jason Joseph who has hosted uh, Super Soul, uh, I think it's Super Soul Mondays I think that he does, and it's been very successful and he's done it for some time now and it's really a great scene. A lot of great musicians come out and uh, you know, so there is that, there are definitely exceptions, but um, but yeah, it, it's tough to do that here.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, somewhere out like you can be in New York and you can have a show that runs for years, you know, sure. and then, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's just interesting the difference of culture and maybe it's, maybe it's the influx and, and outflux of people coming in and out of LA or something like, I don't know.
1: I don't know, you know, yeah, I know. I mean, like I got buddies, I probably, if I went back to, is Cafe Wa still there?
0: Uh, you know what? I don't know.
1: I would bet if it is
0: still there, I would bet that if I went back
1: to The loft today, there's still musicians who are playing there that I you know, would have met there 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, just speaking to your issue of it being less sort of transitional there in New York. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't know what I, I'm not sure what accounts for that here. But, uh, but I do have this conversation a fair bit. And so eventually, I think I am going to be forced to put my money where my mouth is and actually try it actually try to start a go-go band in LA. I like it. Uh, you know, I'll I've i often thought of, well, good. That makes, then, then let's see. I would only, let's see. Go-go is usually like a full, it's like, you know, keys, bass, drums. Usually there's at least one percussion. It's maybe two, a horn section. I mean, you know, you're talking about like a nine or 10 piece right. band a lot of the time. So with you there, then we would be one-tenth of the way to having as many people in the audience as on stage. <laughs> right, right,
0: or I'll play. I or I'll be like one of the nine percussionists in the band. Mm,
1: now, okay, now that's cool. It's just now we're back to a zero <laughs> right. to, uh, to, to, to ten ratio.
0: <laughs> Man, I just took away 100% of our fan base. You did, you did, you did. <laughs> you know,
1: it's funny. I um, We had a contestant on the show recently named Craig Wayne Boyd he actually won a season ago Mm -hmm. and uh, he was telling a story of how when he first started out, he'd be playing these clubs and literally he said he was playing a club somewhere and the only people in the club were the bartender and one server. And he basically said at a certain point, they went outside to have a cigarette. (laughs) And literally there was no one in the entire place. (laughs) I've played gigs like that. (laughs) Yeah, so am I, so am I. Or, uh, you ever play any gigs, Nick, where you ever play any gigs where at the end of the night, I did this when I was in college. I did this when I was, um, in school at Berkeley. You ever do gigs where at the end of the night you get paid in, like, change? You ever do gigs <laughs> one of those?
0: Or with food? <laughs> I got paid with, them, yeah. like, we can let you well, eat. Food is not so bad. <laughs> food is not so bad. Yeah, food
1: is not so bad. You know, because, I mean, I did, I used to play at a place called, um, Bill in Boston. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was an Italian restaurant. And, I mean, like, a good Italian restaurant, man. And so I think we made, I don't remember what the gig paid, not a ton, but I have, to, I have to admit that a lot of the attraction of doing the gig was that they would make us these great dishes to have on the break. Nice. So, uh, so yeah, man, being paid in food is not so bad, yeah. especially when you're a broke college student.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I totally agree. So you would mention Berkeley, and that's a good transition because I want to talk about you know. So you're doing all this stuff in. We took a a long way around the barn to get to you know you playing in in Maryland and all that stuff, and I think I derailed it by talking about go go. But I want to know what that what that journey looks like, like going from Maryland to Berkeley and. You know, there's a big delta between that and playing on the voice. And I'm sure that the listeners are out there thinking, "Okay, how do how can I start to make the transition? How can I start to sort of make that leap and really turn this into a career? So can you just talk a little bit about that, that journey and and sort of summarize it a little bit and we can get more into detail about it in a little bit?
1: Sure. Well, for one thing, it's interesting because I don't I think that a lot of the times we get Caught in this idea, we I mean, get caught up in this idea of feeling like it's a, 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 a leak as you said. Like so, you're standing on the edge of uh, uh, you know a, a riverbed on one side, and there's no bridge, and you have to get to the other side. And so you've got to just make this huge jump and hope that you land on the other side, you know, where there's the promised land of great gigs and and you know, affluence or something. When in fact. It's much more like, if you can imagine, walking across a bridge as you're building it, if that makes any sense whatsoever. So it's more like you you have to stand on the edge of the riverbed, and you have to nail one plank with a cement pylon and some supporting structure and make one plank across. Then you stand on that one plank, and then you put down some more support beams and you nail together one more plank and you take one more step. And then you do that three times and five times and seven times and 10 times. And eventually kind of without even realizing it, you go to put down the next plank and you've actually made it all the way across the, uh, the, the, the expanse, mm-hmm. if you will. So when I, what I, you know, what I say that to mean is my, my flowery analogy just means that at no point in my career have I felt like yeah, I just made this huge leap. It's always just been, okay, I'm looking for a gig now. What are the opportunities? How can I find an opportunity? What will that opportunity be? If I get multiple opportunities, how will I choose which one to do? How many opportunities can I take advantage of at the same time? Can I juggle this tour and be back in town enough to do a couple of sessions here and there, um, all the while you know practicing with this one guy who might have a record deal one day? you know what I mean? Um, so you do all those things continually forever and if you work hard enough at it and you're dedicated enough to it, um, you can oftentimes find that that path sort of gets you to where you're going. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that path or part of walking that path is being prepared. So, you know, to, to, to refer back to my, my bridge analogy, you can only build that bridge if you have the proper tools and, and the proper materials. So getting up to the point of starting to build that bridge, you've got to make sure that, you know, there's several things in place. And so in terms of being a musician, you know, I'm, this is well-trodden territory. I'm not saying anything that people don't know, mm-hmm. but I mean, success as a musician, at least what I found it sort of presupposes as a drummer, let's speak more specifically about drumming, you know, whether or not you have a good time, whether or not your feel is happening, whether or not you're a cool guy to hang out with, those things can't be an issue. Those things have to be a foregone conclusion. Like,
2: right. for you know what I'm everyone. saying? Like all
1: of that, for everyone, for right. everyone, because everyone walking in the door, typically of an audition is a good player, is versatile, you know, has great time, has great feel, is a good guy. Um, so those things all have to be in place first and foremost. And so for me, a big part of that, um, I'm kind of coming around, the long way around now, but that's what I do sort of. Uh, so, <laughs> that's But right. um, a, big, a big part of that for me was going to Berkeley because before, and I don't mean to sound like a Berkeley commercial um, because like any, Higher learning institution, there are plenty of issues. There's problems. There's drama. There's politics. Whatever, but you know that's not. Berkeley doesn't have the monopoly on that. You know, any college that you go to is going to have some of that. Sure. Um, I was at University of Maryland for a year before that because I was on this path that I thought was going to lead me to a mechanical engineering degree
2: mm-hmm.
1: because I wanted to uh, have a degree to. I'm making air buddies right now. Fall back on right. Uh, So in other words, I'm at University of Maryland studying mechanical engineering with no real intention of ever wanting to be a mechanical engineer, doing it solely just in case music doesn't work out. Well, about a half a semester of 8 a.m. engineering calculus, three mornings a week, (laughs) put that out of the picture. I was like, this is, I, I came to the conclusion, I came to the conclusion that to do this major, that major being mechanical engineering, to do this major really, really, really well is going to require an amount of energy and, and uh, dedication equal to trying to be a musician. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't right. half-ass being a musician. You can't kind of half go at it. Um, and think that you're going to succeed. And similarly, you can't kind of half go at being a mechanical engineering major and think that you're going to succeed. It's just too challenging. So the point being, I, uh, at that point came to the conclusion that, you know, my heart wasn't in it. I couldn't do it. So I changed my major to music. Um, in fact, I had a conversation with my dad one day where I said, dad, I need $80. And he said, why do you need $80? And I said, because I have to go and buy a chemistry book that I'm never going to crack. And he said, Why are you never gonna crack it? And I said, Because it's for mechanical engineering and I hate being a mechanical engineering major. And so he said, Oh He said, Well what what would you major in if it was, you know, if you if you changed your major, what would you what would you change it to? And I said, Music. And there was this long
0: deafening silence. <laughs> <laughs> your dad's going, Oh, yeah, well, my
1: dad, let me, let me not paint too unfair a picture. I mean, my right. father is, is, is in great part the reason why. My dad and my mom.
0: Right, that was a Christmas story reference. I don't know if anybody got that, but go on, sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, in any case, my, my, uh, my dad said, okay, we'll go and change your major tomorrow. Um, um, and so I changed it to music. And so I cool. realized I changed my major at University of Maryland from engineering to, uh, to music. And so I realized that a music degree from University of Maryland was in all probability not going to get me where I wanted to be. Um, and again, with all due respect to the music program there, it's just that it's primarily based in, at that time anyway, uh, classical music. So, you know, uh, um, marimba and timpani and concert snare and, and all of that. And uh, so in any case, I realized that I needed to basically find a better, more fertile environment for contemporary music. And that's when I transferred to Maryland um, at the sort of under the, under the guidance and advice of my uh, drum instructor at the time, who's a cat cat named uh, Graham Tennessee, who actually is a Berkeley grad. And he and I talked about it at great length. And, uh, and yeah, so, so going to Berkeley was a big part of, gaining the tools that I needed to ultimately, you know, build that, that, that bridge across the uh, expanse there, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right. So, so yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I've really answered your question, Nick, but you did, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, for me, the two most valuable things, if I could summarize, you know, if someone, if someone were to say Nate in a sentence, you know, summarize, being a successful musician or summarize, you know, get quote unquote, getting to where you are. I would basically say the two most important things were a going to Berkeley b moving to Los Angeles. Um, because, and that's, that's not to suggest that Berkeley is not the, is is the only way. I mean, I would, you know, far be it for me to say that Berkeley is the only way. And if you don't go there, you know, good luck or whatever. Um, I'm just saying that in my little story, that was a very, very key element. Um, You know, I mean, there there are great music programs at a number of campuses, but um, the thing about Berkeley is that not only do they have, you know, they they, they have great facilities, they have great instructors, but then on top of that, you're also surrounded by, uh, at the time that I was there, there were around 2,200 students, where now I'm pretty sure that number has probably grown to maybe 3,000 or even more than that students. Uh, So you're surrounded by, you know, several thousand students, all at or about your age, all striving to, you know, do what you're striving to do. And so you come out amidst this sort of wave or this sea of young musicians coming out and, and, and hitting the ground running, hopefully. And, you know, to this day, there are still people that I went to Berkeley with who call me for gigs. I mean, a lot of the gigs that I get um, have come through, having met someone there, having played with someone there, um, something of that nature. So, so yeah. So it would be it would be it would be Berkeley, or if not Berkeley, at least being getting yourself in a fertile learning environment where you have as much access as you can to great facilities and great instructors, and where you are as surrounded as you can be by other musicians seeking the same thing. Right. So that's step one. Mm-hmm. And then step two is move to where the gigs are. Right. And, and again, you know, and again, my, that, that move to where the gigs are, that's not a be all end all either. I mean, that's just what I found. Um, I, I know people who, you know, have never lived in LA and who have managed to land huge gigs, you know, in while living in their hometowns. It's just that that story is a far less often heard one than the one of, you know, move to where the gigs are.
0: Right. Right. And I I actually just interviewed do you know uh Donnie Grindler?
1: I don't know Donny Grindler. Who's
0: that? Uh so he lives in LA. He's um I mean he's played with Schofield and or maybe not Schofield, but he played with uh DJ Logic and you know, Gray Boy All Stars. This is a drummer? Yeah. 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 Okay. And, uh, so I interviewed him, I just released the interview with him on Monday and he was, you know, he was sort of saying the same thing about moving to where the gigs were and, you know, he painted a picture of moving to LA and it was a, it was a struggle, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of, um, you know, expecting the phone not to ring for a long time, and and sort of getting getting out there and start hustling, and you get a couple gigs here and a couple gigs there, and then you string that together to where you're playing a few times a month, and then you know, then the Absolutely. calls calls start coming in. So how how long how long ago did you move to L. A. And what was your what was your approach to like hit the ground running when you got there? Sure, that's a
1: that's you know what that's a great question, Nick. My my wife this morning. I said, yeah, I'm going to do a podcast with uh, with this cat, Nick. And she said, okay, just ask me the same questions over and over again? And I said, uh, you know, sometimes they do, you know, but it's okay. Because different people have different audiences and so on and so forth, it's fine. Right. But that's a very unique question. And I'm not sure that I've ever been asked that question in that way. Well,
0: uh, let, me, let me preface it with something, not to interrupt you. But no, the, the reason... The reason I started Drummers Resource in the first place was because there's a plethora of knowledge out there of how to play paradiddles and how to play this groove and how yeah. to play this and how to yeah. play that. There's no yeah. resources out there to like talk about how to get a gig, how to keep a gig, how to tour, how to right. handle your business, how to handle your finances, your personal development, and all of that stuff. And I think yeah. that that's an yeah. area that that all drum that I know that I needed for myself when I was coming up. So rather than being able to find it, I just created it for, for drummers out there. So that's why, uh, you know, so that's why I ask questions like this, because I don't, I don't need to ask you, um, you know, how did you learn how to play jazz? Um, Right. Right. You know what I mean? Unless there's something, unless you were known for having a method of how you teach jazz. And I would say, man, we really got to get into that. Like Benny Greb has a whole thing on groove. So we talked extensively about that. But for, you know, for all intents and purposes, I want to know, you know, I want I want to talk about the rubber meets the road and how how the nuts and bolts of this work, not just like, oh, man, go learn how to play paradiddles at 220 and you'll get all the gigs you want, because that's not true. That's fake. That's right. That's that's In a fact, falsity.
1: that's the opposite of true. In right. fact, nothing could be less true.
0: Um, So I interviewed Steve Bowman from County Crows, and he said, he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, you ever hear the joke that you guy goes in for an audition? He's like, hey, man, can you play paradiddles at 250 beats? minute? he's like, yeah. He's like, can you solo over, you know, six over four? He's like, yeah, I could do that. He's like, okay. He's like, do you have like really good chops with with your double bass? He's like, yeah, I could do all that. He's like, I get the gig. He's like, no, that's why we fired the last guy. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, you know, it's funny. But I always, but I always tell people. I, I always tell students. I always say, you know, and it's funny that you just interviewed Little John. Um, I, I always use Janet Jackson. I always go, you know what, Janet Jackson is never going to hear you audition for a gig and go, you know what, your time is great. I love your feel. Your pocket is exceptional. Uh, let me hear you take an extended drum solo.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. And little John of all people can, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) But I mean, you know, it's like this idea, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, speaking of golf and, 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 and leaps and distances, there's a vast expanse between, um, what makes other drummers go, Ooh, versus what actually gets you gigs. Right. You know I what I mean? Totally I mean, agree. Every now and then, it's, it's, you know, there's some crossover. But a lot of the time, it's funny. I talk to my bass player, Sasha, on The Voice, and I'll mention the drummer to him. And I'll go, oh, man, yeah, that guy's really, he's something. Woo, you know, whatever. And Sasha will go, yeah, no. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and his point is, you know, you're looking at it based on the stuff that drummers do that other drummers think is cool. And I'm looking at it based on how easy is it to play with this guy when he's doing all the stuff that other drummers think is cool, but isn't necessarily serving the song. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've learned a lot about that. Um, and it's funny because when I have conversations and thoughts like this, it makes me feel very, very old.
0: <laughs> I don't think <laughs> because so. I did not,
1: I, because I, I didn't always think that way. You know right, what I mean? It's right, right, like, right. And it's I, so I, hard I,
0: as a drummer, you know, like Michael Carvin even said, he's like, you know, it's a, it's too powerful of an instrument to not, you know, Ooh. to not want to play all that stuff. You sit down and the ride symbol like, come on, man, hit me. Come on, come on. Right, he's like, right. next thing you know, man, you're off for an hour and a half, you know, in your practice right. session, just playing shit that you don't need to be playing. And he's like, it's just too powerful, man. He's like, you got to get rid of it. He's like, just go down and play the hi-hat for a half hour.
1: Right, right. Totally. Well, and it's funny too, because, and don't get me wrong, again, I, I, you know, I say a lot of things and I realize that there is a, a, a valid flip side to it as well. Um, because like, for example, going to Berkeley, I loved going to Berkeley and I was fortunate to, you know, learn how to rattle around the kid a little bit and maybe play this polyrhythm or that polyrhythm. But then, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't admit that there is definitely a learning curve when you leave that environment where you kind of have to learn to not do that stuff. I mean, I remember getting Mm -hmm. on one of my first gigs out of Berkeley and it was a cover band. It was a, like a Calypso, you know, um, band that did functions in Boston called search party. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the bass player who was a guy named Dan, Dan would be like, dude, stop playing all that shit. <laughs> you know? And I, and I thought I knew what I was doing. I was like, man, I'm just playing cool stuff and you just don't get it. You just don't get it. And it takes you a little while to realize like, Hey, you know what? He was right. It's like it's not that cool to turn the beat around when people are just trying to dance to hot, hot, hot.
2: Right. You know? It's not that cool. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. It's
1: not that cool. Hey, Hey, guess what? Uh, Nate playing fills that go over the bar and land on the end of two. While they may be hip and impress your drummer buddies at Berkeley, they don't really go that great on Brown Eye Girl.
2: Yeah, they showed sure <laughs> <don't>.
1: up. <laughs> you know, so so. Um, uh, where was I going with that? I guess I was just saying that. Sometimes the things that we as drummers think are cool is not always, you know, the coolest thing. Right. And it is, there is a certain amount of maturity that has to sort of come with knowing when to not do some of that stuff. Right. Um, right. But I want to get back to this question that you asked a moment ago. I totally in did. Terms of yeah. what Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what was sort of my mindset moving out. Um, and... I, you know, I'm kind of all over the place with a lot of these answers. So I apologize for that, but it's okay. I'll start by, I'll start by saying this. One of the questions, like, it's, it's a very daunting, you know, uh, uh, um, very daunting task, let's say, or, or mission, let's say if you're, you know, the guy who's doing all the gigs in Topeka, Kansas. And, you know, you're making a living as the guy playing in Topeka Kansas, and you're like the first call, dude, it's very daunting to leave that. Like, let's say you got, let's say you got, you know, 12 students um, and you're playing in the most, you know, the busiest uh, cover band there. So you're playing every weekend. You're either doing some weddings or you're, you know, playing uh, some, some cover bars there. And um, you know it's 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 not easy to let go of all that to move to LA, so or to New York or to Nashville or to wherever you choose to you know pursue your 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 uh, your career. Um, I think though for me, being in Boston, the idea of moving to LA was scary. Like I would be lying if I you know said like oh no man it was piece of cake. Right. It was terrifying. It was scary but it was less scary than the idea of staying in Boston for the rest of my life with, again, all due respect to Boston. But I just didn't want to find myself. uh, I, I knew, I knew that I did not play drums every day from the time that I was five years old and take all the private lessons that I took and practice as much as I practiced. And went to Berkeley and continued to practice more and more. I knew that I didn't do all of that so that I could play, you know, in, 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 you know, a wedding band until I was 60, you know? Um, and
0: it's sort of (laughs) like, I didn't come this far to come this far.
1: A little, exactly. A little bit. I knew that that wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I knew that, you know, to quote unquote, get to the next level I had to go to where the next level was. And for me at the time I felt like, well, I love Nashville. I was born there, but it's primarily country music, which it still is today. Even though country music is changing, it's Mm -hmm. primarily country music. And so I I knew that that wasn't, I I just didn't feel like that was where my heart was. And I wasn't hell bent on playing straight ahead jazz. And I was ready to get away from the snow. So I wasn't, I wasn't that attracted to New York city. And I also didn't want to pay $2,200 a month for a, uh, you know, for a a one bedroom apartment. Um, which is probably more than that that now. Yeah. Well, LA, LA, you might be surprised is, is far more uh, financially hospitable. I mean, to move out to LA, because it's so sprawling, you know what I mean? It's so sprawling that if you're willing to drive a little bit, you can get an apartment reasonably priced and little things like that. Mm -hmm. So, and the weather's gorgeous. So so right. in terms of my mindset, that was what that was my thought process in terms of pointing the direction at LA. Um, I also felt like if I'm gonna be broke and if I'm gonna, you know, suffer for my art, it might as well be where the weather is nice. Right. <laughs> I, agree. I, mean? I totally agree. Right?
0: Yeah, so, being broke um, in California is a lot better than being broke in New York in the winter.
1: I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> So um, that'll be an interesting debate to have with someone,
0: um,
1: <laughs> but um, because I'm sure that there are people who disagree. I'm sure there are people who would rather be who love the weather, than, than, yeah, who yeah, love the snow. Um, but um, you know, it's funny. My mom, I, I drove out and I and I drove um, part of the trip through where my parents lived at the time, which would have been where were they then? I think that they were in Kent, Ohio. Uh, my father uh, was working at Kent State University. And, um, and so I drove through. And my mom, you know, God love her. Nathaniel, why can't you just see if you can, you know, get a job teaching uh, at the university where your father is? And then, you know, you can buy a house here and you can play in Cleveland on the weekends and you can do this. And I was just like, man, no, that's just not, you know, that's not what, what I'm aiming for. And she she said to me at one point, well, how long are you going to struggle in LA before you give up? And I basically said, as long as it takes, like I've, I've been, you know, this is, this is not, this is, this is going to be not great advice. In fact, it's not advice. It's just me. It's just me and my mentality, but my, my mentality or my motto, if I had to, Name one is basically no plan B.
0: (laughs) Uh, You know what? I just put up this thing on Instagram the other day about a Will about Will Smith saying, you know, there's no point in having a plan B because it distracts from plan A. That's
1: right, no plan B. You know, from the from the very time from the like my my mom is always sort of my my mom is the opposite. My mom has always been, you know, go for plan B first. (laughs) Because even when I was at Berkeley, she wanted me to major in music education. And I said, mom, I'm not going to Berkeley to come out and go and be a teacher. You know, I want to be a player. There's no point in me planning to fail because if I plan to fail, then I'm surely gonna. And so I just felt like, you know, no plan B. So that was whole, my whole thing with moving out as well. You know, well, how long are you going to do it before you give up? Well, forever. I'm not going to give up because I'm not going to fail. I'm, there's no plan B. Um, and to quote, I have a good friend of mine named Tom, Tom lit exceptional bass player out here in LA. Um, and Tom and I would have these conversations. Uh, we both moved out to L.A. around the same time. And he would sort of say a similar thing. He would basically go, you know, Nate, Tom is, Tom is kind of philosophical, you know, and I, mm-hmm. love, yeah, I love hanging out with him. But he says, like he says, you know, Nate, if you ever start to doubt your, your life's path or you start to question whether or not you've made the right decisions, you can always take comfort in knowing that pretty much at this point, there's no turning back now. <laughs> you know, the point being, you've invested, you know, so much time in doing this one thing. You, you know, you, you have no other marketable skills. <laughs> so basically your only choice is to go forward with what you're doing. And it's funny because there's an extent to where it's kind of liberating. You know, having, having no options is kind of liberating in a way. When right. you don't have any choice but one and it's like, all right, there you go. Just go forward. Keep going forward. Right, right. So so that was my, that was my mentality moving out. My mentality moving out was no plan B, no other options. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I, you know, my, my, my whole life has led to this point and, you know, I'm going to continue to follow it and hopefully this point will lead to the next and the next and the next. Mm-hmm. So in continuing my very long winded response, um, I arrived in LA and You know, like you spoke about the cat earlier, who said, you know, when you first arrive, you have to be ready to know that the phone's not gonna ring Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to hustle and deal with all that. My, it was such a different, it was such a different landscape back then um, because emailing and the internet and all of those online resources and things of that nature, 20 years ago, almost, when I moved to LA, um, not quite 20, but very getting closer and closer to 20 years ago. Um, they weren't at the level that they are now. Texting and Instagram, and um, you know, all the kids these days with the, inner, the world wide web and YouTube. <laughs> uh, you know, that wasn't the way that it is uh, or, or that it was back then. But in my own little way, pretty much I woke up every morning and I kind of was like, all right, what can I do at this very moment? to be getting a gig like what like pretty much that was my overriding the overriding premise in my entire life when I first arrived in LA at every second of every minute of every hour of every day I was thinking what can I be doing right now to get a gig and so sometimes that was you know practicing or sometimes that was going to uh you know a rehearsal studio and just kind of hanging around and going and saying hi to people who might have been rehearsing in bands there uh, it might've been putting up flyers, drummer available. It might've been waiting for Thursdays when the LA weekend came out, because I would turn straight to the back, you know, pages where it would say musicians wanted. And I would look for, you know, drummer wanted for band, you know, uh, right. you, you know, the common one was keys, bass, drums, and vocals wanted for established LA band. <laughs> 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 you know, you go, what? Established? You don't have an instrument. But, um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was basically my mentality. And so, and and I, I, pursued, I pursued it in all directions, you know, even I, I had not intended to be a teacher full time, although I need to add the caveat that I actually do teach uh, privately and enjoy it very much um, when I have an opportunity to do so. And it's something that I take seriously and I enjoy doing, I enjoy mentoring to people as well, but it was not my intent at that time to do that full time. However... I did do that in certain contexts where I would be, for example, a teacher's assistant at, um, you know, Musician's Institute. My buddy Tom Witt was also at Musician's Institute at the time. And he was like, hey, you know, they hire teacher's assistants to come down. And essentially, if you're a teacher's assistant on drums at Musician's Institute, which is here in Hollywood, it's a, you know, a music school. um, That's where Donnie
0: Grindler, that's where you were. He's the... The head of percussion and something. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. 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 Well, then. Um. I. I mean. I'm sure that many of your listeners listeners are familiar with it, but um, if you're a teacher's assistant there, then that basically means maybe you and a bass player are sitting in on a class that's taught by a guitarist, and maybe the lesson that week is you know sixteenth note funk pattern one hundred and one, and the teacher will demonstrate it and play it with you, the bass player and the, and the drummer as a rhythm section. And then sort of the kids will cycle through and they'll all get their opportunity to play it with the rhythm section. And then the teacher will offer his or her critiques. Um, which by the way, I I would be lying if I didn't say that I have some issues with that educational model,
2: mm.
1: but um, yeah, but um like I said, I think, I take education very seriously and I have some very, um, firm beliefs about good aspects and bad aspects, but, um, that's another combo for another time. Um, so I was doing that. So that was all I was doing. So I was, I was TAing at, at MI, I was scrounging around for any opportunities, any gigs that I could find. I was, uh, you know, I was, I was looking through the, the LA weekly and music connection here for, for any opportunities. Um, and while YouTube wasn't the thing that it is today, there was there were some online resources. You know, I would try to find web pages dedicated to songwriters, and I would try to sort of reach out and go like, "Hey, I'm a drummer. If you ever you ever need a drummer to play some of your songs, you know, let me know." Hey, um, and uh, and yeah, that was that was my that was my mentality. That was what I did. And here and there, I would get a call for a little gig, or I would get a call for an audition, or whatever. And then sort of one thing would lead to another. And then uh, that's just kind of how the, how the ball sort of got rolling. If that, you know, if that makes any sense at all, sure. if that's helpful.
0: So I I guess I got to ask the question where, you know, you were saying that you didn't have a plan B and that this is what you were going to do. Now, what was the driving force behind that? Was it, was the force saying, because this is what I have to do for a living and there's no ifs, ands or buts about it? Or was it just, or was it more of a, at some point it's like, you know what, now I just have to do this because I got to prove everybody wrong and I got to, I got to prove myself right. So to speak.
1: Um, there was never any prove everyone wrong in my own mentality Although you know what they say. They say success is the best revenge. Right. Um, but, um, but no, there was never that. Because I think that I understood even then that the people, my mom, for example. You know, my mom didn't discourage me from moving to L.A. because she thought I was crazy. Or because she thought I was wrong or she thought I wasn't talented enough or whatever. I mean, she believed as a mom that it would be better for her son to choose a stable path and you know, whatever. Um, so I didn't really have necessarily like detractors kind of going like, you know, who do you think you are? You're never going to be a success. You sure. can't do that. You know, I never really had that. So there wasn't a prove anybody wrong thing. I can basically just say this, I, I'll try to, I'll try to summarize this sort of briefly. Um, I had a conversation once with my father, And I was probably about 12, maybe a little older. And at the time, my dad was working at a university. He's worked at universities historically, you know, his whole life he's worked at universities. And he was, you know, in administration. And he would wear a suit every day to work, which he enjoyed. I do not enjoy suits. I'm allergic to suits. I can't stand (laughs) wearing suits. Me too. Um, Or dress shoes. I can't stand wearing dress shoes either, which he also wore every day. And I said to him one day, I said, so dad... I said, you, you go to work every day and you work like eight hours a day. And he kind of said, you know, well, yeah, son, yeah, that's what I do. Sometimes I work 10 hours, you know, sometimes more than that. Um, and I said, and you, you do that five days a week. And he said, yeah, son, getting a little more aggravated with me. He said, yeah, yeah that's what you do. That's what you do. And I said, and you're going to do that until you're 60 something and retire, which is like, you know, like 30 years from now, or something like that, and and he kind of said, "Yes, son, it's a job. People get a job. That's what people do, son." Right. And I remember in that conversation, thinking, "That's not what I'm going to do." I just remember going, "I, that's not what I'm going to do. I can't do that." Like right. the idea of having a job to me was kryptonite.
0: Uh, dude, so, I'm the same way. My, my I had a yeah. conversation with my wife a couple of weeks ago and there's some opportunities that have come up recently and, and they were pretty good opportunities. And I was like, I don't really, I don't want to, and I did like air quotes. I was like, I don't want a job, you know? And she's right. like, who are you? What are, you? know, like why do you think that and I'm like, I don't know. It's just how ha- I've never really, The ha- I mean, you know, I own my own businesses and all that stuff. I'm like, I never really had a job. So.
1: Right. Right. And, and again, you know, that's,
0: that's, With all due respect
1: to people who work jobs and and, and have jobs that they love and enjoy and are incredibly stable. I mean, you know, my father at one point, it's funny when I do these things and I chat and I talk about how, you know, my life has gone and where I realize some of the key turning points or crucial, you know, moments in my life. I also had a conversation once with my dad and we were on the bus going somewhere and someone got on the bus and it was a similar conversation. At this point I was a little older. I was older. I was in college because I remember that I was home visiting my folks from, from Berkeley. And my dad and I were on the bus and a guy got on the bus in some Sears coveralls. And I just kind of said to my dad, I said, Man, that's a you know hardworking dude. And I said, I bet that's, you know, hard work that he does. But I said I couldn't imagine working on a loading dock, you know, loading and unloading trucks all day, for example. And my dad looked at me and he said, you know what? He can't imagine doing what you do, which is you don't know how you're going to support yourself from one week to the next. You don't know where your next gig is coming from or your next check or how you're going to pay your rent at the end of the month. <laughs> yeah. And he, basically, he put it out like that, you know, it's like that guy knows, he knows he's getting paid. He knows that every day he shows up, there's going to be boxes to load or unload and he's going to have a job and he's going to be able to support himself and support his family. And basically the path that you're choosing, you don't. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a toss up. So, but I definitely, I definitely have felt like, you know, I have been willing to sort of take that risk, um, more often than not to avoid having to, you know, as you said, and as I say, sort of have a a, air quotes job, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so uh where 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 were we going with that? I kind of lost my Well, was we thought. I, thought
0: I, I was asking more of the the drive and the and the focus that was behind it. Right, right. So
1: so 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 there was the there was the I don't want a job aspect. There was the um like Peter Pan syndrome, I don't want to grow up. I want to be a kid forever. And so part of that, it's like, okay, well, what did I enjoy doing when I was five years old? Oh, I know. Banging on pots and pans with wooden salad spoons. And basically it was like, okay, so if I keep banging on pots and pans with wooden salad you know, salad spoons, if I do that for a few hours and then more hours and then more hours, I can one day get to the point where I can actually make a living banging on pots and pans with wooden salad spoons. Wow. Okay, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, sure. and that's what I feel like I do. That's literally what I feel like I do. I feel like I'm still the same four or five year old kid banging on pots and pans, you know, on the floor of my kitchen. Um, And so, so there's that. So, so there's the, there's the, I would like to avoid the traditional, you know, 40 hour a week job aspect. And then there was also the, I love what I do so much. How can I turn this into a job? And it wasn't until, My drum instructor, Grant Benefy, round about high school age, was basically the first person to kind of go, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you keep practicing and you work hard enough at this, you actually might be able to make a living doing it, you know? Um, And that was the, and literally it was like that. It was like, at that time in high school, I mean, I knew that they were bands, you know, and, and, and I knew that, you know, that those things exist. But, but the aspect or the idea of actually that being able to be me was, you know, kind of foreign because at that time I lived in a suburb. And so I didn't see, I lived in a suburb of, of Baltimore called Columbia, Maryland. And I didn't really see, like if I went out on the weekend and there was some guy playing in a bar And I would go, or not in a bar, but, you know, in a restaurant or whatever. And I would go and try to chat to them, the drummer, you know, and I would go, you know, my, my, one of the first questions out of my mouth, because like a lot of people, you know, you want to figure out how they, how they got to where they're doing and what they're doing, like, like this, like we're talking. And so I would always say, you know, is this what you do for a living? And pretty much across the board, I would always get, (laughs) no way, you know, I, I can't do this for a living. You know, I'm an accountant or I'm an attorney or I'm a. Delivery guy for UPS, uh, and so you know the idea that you could do it for a living was still kind of on the outskirts. It was definitely a fringe mentality, uh, and it wasn't like I said. It wasn't until Grant Menifee actually did say, "You know what? You you could actually do this for a living." Right. Um, so yeah. So let me so, ask. So, so that's all. So that's the thing. So 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 to sum up, golly, I'm long-winded. That's all. Right. Uh, sorry, I, like I it. But but to sum up. Um, yeah, it was it was the idea of avoiding getting a real job and that combined with the idea of what I'm doing in terms of playing music. I love so much that I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to make it so that that's all I have to do, you know, for mm-hmm. a job. Quote right. unquote.
0: So let me ask you this, and I think this is a, a telling sign. Were you prepared or are you still prepared, I guess, uh, to do this forever if there was you know no money involved and and you were going to be this this a struggling musician say when you got to LA and we're talking now almost 20 years later and you're like yeah hey, mm. man I'm still making 300 bucks a week playing right you know? right like, were you right. would you've would you've kept doing it i mean were you prepared to just all in like hey man if i never make money at this i don't care i want to tell you something
1: Funny. So there's a movie coming out right now, and I think it's called The Walk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a it's a movie movieized or a Hollywoodized presentation of this event of uh, this guy Philip Petit. I believe is his name. Oh, he walks
0: on the, the guy he, who walks exactly, the Twin he's Towers. High yeah, high rope
1: walk between the Twin Towers. Now many years ago, or at least a few years back there was a documentary that came out about the same event. It's called man on wire. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to be listening to Philip Petit on NPR one morning when that documentary came out and they're talking to him and it's just like the most inconceivable thing. I mean, the guy's walking on a, a piece of steel stretched, you know, a hundred stories in the air, right? It's, it's ridiculous. Right. And so the interviewer at one point asked him, how do you reconcile the fear of falling? Like how do you reconcile the fear of falling? Like how do you make yourself get out there and overcome that and, and 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 do it? Which is kind of a little connected to what you're asking me, which is what was your mentality? How did you reconcile when you were here the fear of falling or the fear of failing, I'll say. Um, and his answer was an interesting one. He basically said, If I believed that I could actually fall, I never would be able to step out on the rope. Like that was his, his mentality. His mentality was the concept of me falling is not even existent in my brain. You know, it's impossible. I think at some point he might have said something like that. It's impossible for me to fall.
2: (laughs) Right. I like it.
1: And so, yeah. And so, I mean, I'm kind of paraphrasing. And if anybody is more familiar with that interview than me, I apologize if I'm sort of butchering what his response was. But, But that was basically his idea. And I remember the interviewer saying to him, so... You view yourself somewhat like a superhero. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think it's more of just if before anyone else has to believe it, you have to believe it. So something if, like that. You if know? you think that oh, you're yeah. if you're constantly thinking about failing and and you think that there's a possibility that you're going to fail, chances are you're gonna fail, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's hard to make yourself do it. It's hard to make yourself do it if you feel like there's a possibility that I'm really going to fail at this. And so, you know, so, so, so that's my long way around answering your question, which is it's hard for me to imagine if, if 20 years down the track, I was still playing gigs and I was still struggling, struggling, struggling and hustling, 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 and not getting ahead because I have to admit that whether it's, you know, foolish, uh, immature, Uh, you know immortal I'm going to take over the world or whatever it was back then um, I I couldn't I couldn't really fathom that I can't I couldn't imagine that at the time Um, so yeah so that's that's I can't even really answer the question sorry
0: no sorry (laughs) that's cool so I want to ask you one more question I want to be I want to be cognizant of your time because I know we're over an hour but so if you if you could give upcoming we're drummers, over an hour we're yeah. over an hour yeah
1: oh my wife's gonna be mad at Ooh, you trouble. because I have to take her to Ikea today <laughs> and yes yeah, so she's waiting for me to take her to Ikea I bet but, and I have to go to Ikea even though you know I have no saying what gets chosen or selected on ikea basically it's like one of those situations where she says do you like this and then i have to try to guess what the right answer is right I You're like, go, uh, yeah. i, I kind of look at her i kind of look at her and go yeah and then if her expression changes
0: i go you know no, no it's horrible it's ugly it's 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 terrible. terrible i'm yeah, just right. learning those ropes i just got married so i'm just trying to learn oh did it. you yeah in May, oh, so I'm it out.
1: i mean congratulations <laughs> <laughs> no no marriage is wonderful yeah, it's is, is,
2: is
0: wonderful. It's great my wife is
1: amazing. Life, you were amazing. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> so one one last question then, if for the people that are looking to dive into this head first and and do do what you did and do what you do, what's what's mm-hmm. one piece of imparting or it's a part of uh, if I could talk, I would ask the question. What is one piece of wisdom that you would impart to them?
1: Oh my goodness. Um one piece of wisdom that I would impart. You know, I mean, I'm going to sound redundant and this is going to be a, a a boring wrap up to this, unfortunately, but I would just say that again, reflecting on, on my own experience, um, get into environments with as many, um, musicians as you can, all striving, uh, to be as strong musicians as they can be, uh, go to where the gigs are. Um, and, um, you know, for me, I always felt like, for me, I would always want to be listening to and playing as much music as possible across as many genres and influences as possible all the time. So for me, I never... Turn down an opportunity. Obviously, if it's a situation where you feel like you're going to go into something and maybe the musicians aren't playing at the level that you want to be playing at, and you feel like it's going to actually be detrimental, either because you won't sound good or because it'll somehow negatively affect your playing, then that's obviously something that you want to avoid. Sure, but um, but yeah, I mean, my mentality was always play as much as you as much as you possibly can all the time. Listen to as much as you possibly can all the time that that would probably be it in a nutshell and it's interesting because uh i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this i'm gonna bring this all the way back around uh and put a little bow i on like top it. i like i it. am i am watch watch me watch me bow here um it's interesting because when my dad would buy me and would send that really very very eclectic blend of of music that he would send, and maybe it was jazz or it was R&B or it was rock or pop or whatever, um, that was kind of the beginning. And then my entire life, I've only ever sort of done what I just said, which is listen to as much as I possibly can and play as much as I possibly can. And I've always just added more and more to that. So whenever I discovered one new thing, the other stuff didn't go away. So when I discovered Stevie Wonder, Everything preceding it didn't go away. And then when I discovered Chikorita, everything preceding it wasn't like, oh, I'm in fusion now, everything else goes away. It was all added. So my whole life I've been adding and adding and adding and adding ingredients. And kind of on the voice now, um, you know, we're playing in a given show something that's orchestral, something that's country, something that's hip hop, something that's 80s. Rock something that's you know uh, R and B, and that might all be in one show. And so, inadvertently, by following that idea of playing as much, listening to as much, playing as much, listening to as much for my entire life, I've sort of been inadvertently preparing for this gig, and I didn't even know it. You know what I mean? Totally. I was preparing for this gig when I didn't even know that this was the gig that I was preparing for. Um, and so yeah, so that's that's it. That's it in a nutshell.
0: Awesome, awesome man. So listen, where should people go if they want to learn more about you, or connect with you, and and take lessons from you?
1: Um, you know what? I try to steer people to my Facebook page, which okay. is uh, Facebook dot com slash Nate Morton Drums. Facebook dot com slash Nate Morton Drums, and I'm very easily accessible there. You can hit me there and message me. Um and I will do my very, very, very best to always get back and and to the extent, you know, to the best extent that I can, I'm always happy to uh exchange knowledge or share information. Um, you know, uh maybe I can share things that will help you move forward. Maybe I can share things that will help you avoid mistakes that I made. Um you know, yeah, I'm always happy to do that. And I do teach when the opportunity allows, and it's something that I enjoy doing very much. Um, So yeah, no, I, 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 you know, when I was a kid, I did not have, for for, for a great part of my life, I didn't have access, you know? I didn't have access to people actually doing what I wanted to do. It's why I was so disappointed every time I would meet someone and go, is this what you do full time? And they would go, no. i go, oh, all right, that doesn't help me. And so, I, in 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 turning that around, I like to give people as much access, and specific people, but more specifically, drummers and aspiring musicians. Um, I like to try to give them as much access to what I do as I possibly can.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's like I said. It's I take I take mentoring and teaching very seriously. And it's something that I enjoy doing. I think that everyone should have a mentor and everyone should be a mentor. Um, So, and I I think that probably comes from my father's influence because, you know, he's at, at certain points in his career was a college professor. Uh, Now he works in college administration, but I think it's that, you know, educational, I think I have education in my DNA um, or teaching, you know, in my DNA. So Mm. I enjoy doing it as much as I can.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so, Nate, so, so, Facebook.com slash Nate Morton Drums.
0: Cool. And I'll link up to everything in the show notes page at drummersresource.com forward slash one three three. So that way they can find all the links and everything that we talked about during the podcast if they want to, if they want to check back. And to you, Nate, I want to just say thank you very much for, for taking the time to chat with me, all of your wisdom. This was a great conversation. I really do appreciate it, man. And uh, just thank you for being a part of this.
1: You got it. Hey, Nick, I have a quick question in pardon, Are you going to um, edit this or are your listeners really going to hear just how long and rambling my answers
0: are? Oh, no, man. We just go. We go at it. We just let it go. No, no editing.
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> no editing. Make me sound smart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no editing at all, my man. Impossible, impossible.
1: Okay. All right, man. Well, look, this has been a real, real pleasure chatting
0: to you. My pleasure as well, man. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it, and I'll talk to you soon. You got it. So there you have it, Mr. Nate Morton, and you can check out the links to everything that we talked about, especially how to get in touch with Nate. If you go to drummersresource.com forward slash session three. Four. Again, if you're looking to take your career and you're drumming to the next level and want to work with me on a one-on-one basis, check out drummersresource.com forward slash coaching. We'll set up a quick call, see if we're the right fit for each other. And then hopefully we can work together. Check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource. I'm on Instagram at drummers resource on Twitter at drummers R source. And do me a favor, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate it. Plus it helps get more eyes and ears on the podcast and helps to spread the word. So don't just listen, interact, leave a rating, leave a review, shoot me an email, say hello, interact with me on social media social media. I love hearing from you guys. So, so please don't hesitate to reach out until the next podcast. Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I love you. I mean it. And I'll talk to you soon. Peace.